0: A belief in people, a belief that people can change, people can grow, and that everybody has something to give. We just need to kind of help them see it. Purposity Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom.
1: Welcome to Purposey with Kate Markey. Kate is the CEO of London Community Foundation. She's been at the forefront of the for-purpose sector for decades. She was editor of The Big Issue magazine. She has a real passion for social justice, for empowering people on the margins. Kate has talked about the inspiration her mother gave her for the career she has. We have a really deep conversation. And can I just ask you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever platform you're on, hit follow, hear more of Purposely, and it really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Kate Markey, welcome to Purposey Podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
1: You're the CEO of the London Community Foundation. I am. Tell us about its vision. Tell us its mission.
0: Our vision for London is a more equal society. We do that by believing that communities that are often characterised as disadvantaged and without assets are actually rich in ideas and resources. It's our job to help mobilize them and for the amazing community groups that we know operate under the radar, get the resources, the funding and the networks they need to help change people's lives in their communities. We do that by also convening those who can give in London. So companies, individuals, public sector who can invest in grassroots organizations on themes that really matter to London. But our specialism is really focusing on those grassroots organizations because we believe there are many issues they are best placed to tackle for their communities.
1: Wonderful. And so you're one of 46 community foundations in the UK. Um, I think it's 48 now. 48, is it? Gosh.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's growing all the time.
1: Give us an idea of the scale of the London Community Foundation and how you are different maybe to some of the others because they all come in different shapes and sizes, don't they?
0: They certainly do. But the belief in people, in local people and in local philanthropy is the the golden thread through all of us. In London, we are 21 staff. We're committing, raising, committing around nine and a half to 10 million a year. We hold around 22 million of endowment, which is probably quite small for what you'd think of in terms of a capital city. And there are some reasons for that, which we can possibly explore. Our average grant size is 17,500. So it, you know, we are funding small organizations. You know, most of them are sub 150,000 turnover. Some of them much, much smaller than that. Most of them very reliant also on a good community of volunteers. A lot of them also focused and led by uh, people with lived experience of the issues or the neighborhoods that they are supporting. So really kind of tapping into kind of that that local network of what helps our communities have great social capital. And, you know, we see these organisations as essential to the social fabric of our neighbourhoods.
1: And so combining building an endowment for the future of London and people of London, but also donating out, making grants out of that and supporting the here and now?
0: Absolutely. It's uh, particularly at the moment during the cost of living crisis, we are thinking about the immediate but also thinking about the medium term. So actually what happens to support for those people who will be disproportionately impacted by the cost of living crisis after it's finished, but actually kind of they will feel the impacts longer and harder than others. And it's how we support them through the work that we do by convening philanthropy in London to think about the medium term as well as the immediate.
1: Yeah, and Community Foundation's, an import from North America, aren't they? So it's not necessarily a concept that is well understood in other parts of the world. But is that a concept you have to explain to people when when you say you lead this organization or do you think the Brits have, have understand what it is now and, and get it?
0: That feels like a loaded question, Mark. I think we're, we're often kind of called the, the best-kept secret, which is kind of frustrating to hear but understandable because... We are not a retail uh, fundraising charity. Uh, By that, I mean, we don't have, we're not a big brand. We are not public facing in the sense of having fundraisers on the streets or doing, particularly doing fundraising activity in the main. The majority of our funds come from individual philanthropy. So uh, wealth, but also public sector funds and also from corporations and companies in the, in the city who, who want to give back to where they're, employees are. But actually, we are. Uh, the times when we do come into the into the public domain, so to speak, is often when there's a crisis and often when there is an emergency, sadly. So, we saw, unfortunately, during the Grenfell Tower tragedy, we have a partnership with the Evening Standard newspaper and that money was raised and an incredible, incredible outpouring from not just London, but far afield in terms of local people or individuals, often those with very little to give, but a massive outpouring of support. But our community foundations see that. Our community foundation peers also see that also. So those community foundations who are operating in places where there is high risk of flooding, often also see that so actually a real mobilization of local giving in what you would traditionally see as, as as retail or public fundraising. But it's in those times of crisis where people turn to community foundations and, and we respond, as we, ha- as we are doing now with the cost of living crisis. We have a, a, an appeal that we've started and we are seeing people give to it. And it's the people's generos- generosity is incredible.
1: And always, you know, having lived in Britain myself for a long time, the Brits are are generous. There's a real history of of giving back and giving to, to charity, often typically around emergency giving, you know, internationally. But but Grenfell Tower was the, was one of the times where actually the, the the attention was local. But also with COVID, I know the London Community Foundation played a significant role in in the response to the pandemic. Take you back to March 2020 and COVID hits and these are, you know, lockdowns are, are kind of imminent or they were sort of later that year. But tell us about what that was like for you leading the London Community Foundation. Was it obvious what your role would be?
0: It was actually very quickly uh, obvious what the role was. I say that because the amount of individuals in London, uh, whether it be senior executives within companies or dignitaries in London who made contact very quickly with LCF not only to help mobilize support but actually also to say are you okay and that was really important and something you know, that I will, I'll never forget in terms of people's awareness of potentially what the impact was going to be for London Community Foundation's team in mobilising and distributing emergency activity to the scale that we did. To give you some indication of, of what, we, what we saw on the same team numbers, we deployed just under three times the amount of money that, that we normally do that year. And what was fortunate is that a lot of the donors who have existing funds with us, so donor-advised funds, which obviously you know is a model of community foundations, contacted us immediately and saying, lift the restrictions, we trust you, which was really powerful and quite emotional to hear. And I still get quite emotional about it um, when I think about just... The trust that organisations put in LCF and that I know that the team never, ever, ever take for granted. And, and we, because of those restrictions being lifted and because of the support around us, we were deploying funds within four days within lockdown. How did we do that? Well, we also came together with a number of other funders across London to create something called the London Community Response This was, in essence, a a platform where charities across the capital could apply for funds. They would have one place that all funders would be so that it would reduce the duplication, speed up the process. All the other funders, together with LCF, we worked very quickly to simplify a process, create a platform. And I have to give absolute credit to James Banks, the CEO of London Funders, and his utterly amazing team who created the platform the portal for us to be able to work off we agreed monitoring we agreed application process we agreed uh, due diligence process and actually kind of the scale of what we were able to do at the speed that we did it was staggering and something that I'll never forget it felt like a military operation at times so kind of in in those first months we were hosting we had teams of grant assessors assessing uh, kind of uh, am pm we were holding grant decision processes uh, in the evening we had twice daily payment runs to get the money out the door as quickly as possible we went digital like like a lot of organizations did very very quickly and the team were absolutely on it I am so unbelievably proud of actually kind of what they did. And boy, do they know their stuff. They really know London's grassroots. And actually, but, you know, the challenge could be rightly kind of drawn at us is that actually we can, you know, as funders, we can collaborate and mobilize money that quickly during emergency. Actually, how do we learn about what happens after an emergency? And I think there's, you know, kind of we have really tested ourselves as London Community Foundation to say, what are the... What are the restrictions? What are the processes that we, during an emergency, said, why do we need those? And we will remove them. And actually, how many of them have we put back? Um, and I'd like to say that actually kind of uh, only a few of them have gone back. But actually also kind of, you know, the, the London Community Foundation Board of Trustees were amazing. You know, we... You know, I look back to actually kind of what's, you know, they were trying to kind of, you know, lead, govern the organization through a really challenging time and actually kind of, and listening to kind of what was going on across all those other funders and taking recommendations from us to say you know, delegate those authorities, let us mobilize the money. If if we, if we, if you don't delegate them, we're going to slow things down. You know, over a third of our money went to food allocation. So actually kind of, and the, the trustee board of LCF were absolutely stepped up. They were fantastic. And actually, you know, many of those delegated authorities that we really tested during COVID have actually stayed where they are. You know, we haven't gone back to saying, you know, we haven't gone back to those original kind of authorities. And, you know, I'm really proud of the board for doing that.
1: And there's no, you know, there wasn't really any playback or playbook for a pandemic. And it was a real unknown quantity, especially for leaders. You said you realized pretty quickly what role you guys would have to take. Do you remember driving home and and thinking, or, you know, heading home and thinking, wow, I need to really step up like on a personal level? What was the, what was the thoughts in private?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was, I would, you know, yeah, I was frightened. Uh, Kind of, I didn't know what was coming for the organization. I was really worried about the team. I'd like to think I showed uh, kind of whether I intended to or not. I think I showed a fair amount of vulnerability to the team, You, you know, in the kind of those really kind of dark periods. I know I was, I remember having this little book of, I've got a box of quotes, and it's called Resilience in a Box. I think I bought it in a bookshop kind of years ago. And I remember kind of pulling out, you know, kind of maybe kind of once once a week, once uh, twice a week, some quotes that actually kind of really kind of stuck with me and sharing with the team. And it just became a thing that I did kind of, you know, kind of during during COVID of just sharing, sharing a quote, telling them why I was sharing it, you know, telling them that I was thinking about them, telling them how proud I was of them. I think I tried to bolster my own resilience by articulating to the team that I was thinking of them that what they were doing was amazing that we were in this together that we were going to make mistakes and that's fine and I was probably making more than most and actually it was frightening you know actually kind of it was really uncertain and also I was very very aware that the team you know if you think about we deployed just under three times the amount that we normally do that is a staggering amount of applications to read. And if you think about, even if we'd created very streamlined processes, those are a lot of stories of heartache and upset and life, death and poverty and just real upset for the team to be reading. And they were the ones that were reading them, not me. You know, to a degree, actually, I had a, I had a harder job. That, sorry, I had an easier job kind of holding it, holding the uncertainty, making sure kind of I wasn't passing down too much anxiety. But boy, they were the ones on the front line for LCF reading the heartache. And actually kind of that's, that's what I was worried about.
1: Yeah. And has it changed you? Has it changed the team visibly? Like have you have you noticed, like, have you guys got the energy to to deal with another crisis and and kind of you feel energized by that period? What was the effect?
0: Yeah, I think like most organizations, like most individuals, we are we're probably holding, you know, an element of our own experiences during COVID and I think we probably kind of talk, I probably talk a lot more about well-being and about anxiety, um, about uncertainty than I probably did before COVID. You know, I think all of us, you know, kind of it's when something, you know, we, we have lived through a global pandemic and I have to, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I have to catch myself and think, God, we've lived through a global pandemic. And actually, I think it's impacted all of us. But I think it, you know, it makes you think about your own mortality. It makes you think about, other people's well-being probably in a different way you know i've always been concerned about kind of actually just you know that push and pull with the team of actually just you know i spend my time worrying about people and money um i'm worrying about actually kind of you know are are people going to stay with us i'm worrying about are they all right i'm worrying about and it's i just think that kind of goes with the job of being a ceo but I, i i you know kind of we probably talk more about it now than previously we did and that's you know kind of that that's I, I I'm hoping that's a good thing for the team but we also have to balance that with the the primary purpose of being here for London's grassroots and mobilizing and convening money to get to the people who need it the most yeah and I think the team are really cited on that you know I think kind of they they step up as they have done now with the cost of living they step up when it's needed and I'm forever grateful to them for that
1: and you touched on this before but In terms of the funds under management that you hold are lower than most other capital cities across the globe and there was a special reason for that was that linked to the pandemic or was that just a willingness to get the money out the door or
0: no i mean i don't think the i don't think the level of endowment we hold is particular to the pandemic i think it's probably kind of slightly particular to london so london's generosity is incredible during a crisis but actually kind of the i guess the philanthropic landscape in london is really fragmented there's some kind of you know there's some kind of very well publicized kind of reports about if you are someone who has money to give in London, actually navigating your way around London's charitable sector can be really confusing and somewhat daunting. (laughs) And I really understand that. You know, we always have to kind of take yourself out of kind of out of your own world and kind of look at it from actually somebody else's perspective. Uh, But there are lots of, you know, kind of different Philanthropic boutiques and agencies in London. You know, I'd like to think that individuals and companies and public sector bodies come to LCF because they say a level of authenticity and connection to London's grassroots that we bring. I'm not underestimating, actually, kind of, it. it's really tough for us to kind of try and. You know, kind of make sure that we can be as connected as possible across 32 boroughs. It's quite a challenge, but do we understand the themes of what London needs and actually kind of the needs of grassroots organisations, particularly? Absolutely, I think we do. Can we always do more? Absolutely, but I, I really think we compared to the other offerings of, of philanthropy in London. And that's not a criticism. It's just, you know, this is London. Actually kind of there is a real spread of service in terms of actually if you are a, a donor that's looking to give. But I think I'd like to think that our uniqueness is is that we are London centric and that we are convening public, private and individual money and we are really, really connected to what the London's grassroots sector needs. I also think it's about need that I think the prospect of selling an endowment can be quite challenging in a capital when there is very 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 obvious need around you you know it's that balance of giving now versus and or enduring impact and you know that can be challenging i think you know there are calls at the moment for the philanthropic sector to have some level of government ministerial focus and then also to look back at actually kind of what's helped philanthropy across the country previously and that's been government match it's been where there have been programs uh, where or challenge programs where donors have been offered potential leverage against what they do and that's been you know effectively not subsidized by the government but actually encouraged by the government's and I, you know, it'd be interesting to see kind of what happens in the coming years, as to kind of actually, kind of what what happens with philanthropy, what happens with charitable endowments and trusts. You know, obviously, kind of thinking about kind of market performance and investment performance as well, and what happens, and actually how we help the charitable sector recover because it is in a perfect storm at the moment.
1: Absolutely, and changing tech for a minute and taking you back in time. And you've, you know, you've, you know, had a really purposeful career, but as far back as sort of your childhood, is there any kind of indication then or part of the way you brought up that you would want to make a difference to, to people in the planet? Like, is there stuff growing up that you look back on and, and think that was instrumental in wanting to do this work?
0: Gosh, that's a good question. I think I was brought up with a real sense that the personal is political, but actually kind of how I how I choose to live my life has an impact on society, and I, d- I don't mean that in any kind of pious way. But you know, I became a vegetarian when I was four. I'd like to say, you know, my parents were vegetarians. They weren't. I think it was because I was a bit of a precocious child. But I was absolutely resolute that I wasn't eating animals. And I think I always had very strong opinions about what I thought was right. And I think you know, my mum was a really big influence on me in the sense that actually kind of she had a real sense of purpose despite adversity. She had kind of a long-term illness, but actually kind of incredibly, uh, she was a teacher. She wouldn't have taught in any other places apart from those communities she felt that really needed support. And she took utter delight in, in working with students and seeing them grow, but actually kind of hid her illness from everyone from the head teachers at school. She was a dialysis patient, but people didn't know. So she dialyzed three times a week, seven hours a day for many years, but actually kind of eventually went on the transplant list and got a kidney transplant straight away, but actually had to ring the headmaster and tell him that she wasn't going into school the next day. He had no idea she was a dialysis patient. I can't imagine that happening these days, but actually that gives you some indication of the kind of resilience that I was brought up around. And despite that's I guess kind of that illness actually going kind to of resolute that actually we are putting this put on this earth to have an impact. and I think that's what stayed with me. And, you know, a driving belief that actually kind of the, the a belief in people, a belief that people can change, people can grow, and that everybody has something to give. We just need to kind of help them see it. And also that, you know, kind of I've been incredibly fortunate throughout my career to work with some people that, boy, I have learned from and been inspired by, you know, and I'm very, very grateful. And they have been at different parts of the organization. You know, this is not me saying actually kind of I've worked with CEOs who've you know this is actually kind of people on the front line kind of people in different roles that actually kind of we all have a job to do and we can all learn you know and the day I stop learning is the day I will pack my bags I think.
1: Yeah wonderful and your mum's determination like do you remember that vividly and do you remember having an effect on who you became?
0: Yeah 100% you know she became a kidney she had kidney failure when she was when she was a teenager, they told her she would never have children, she would never be a teacher. And knowing my mum, she probably put the kind of proverbial two fingers up to to them and, and told them otherwise and had two children and became a deputy head teacher. And wouldn't have as I say, kind of wouldn't have worked anywhere else. You know, I think kind of she had a stint in a in a School in a very affluent area, and just couldn't stick it. She wanted to work, you know, where she saw that she could have real impact, and actually where she really loved the kids and and seeing actually kind of the hunger and and for those kids to learn. And I think kind of I've you know kind of I've always seen. I hope I've always seen the the person, not the problem. You know, kind of before I came to LCF, I was working for a recruitment agency for ex-offenders it was a social enterprise called blue sky i was very lucky to be the md there and worked with possibly the most inspirational team of ex-offenders that i have ever had the privilege to work with and possibly some of the most employable people i've ever met in my life and i know that they changed my life for the better Mm. one of them in particular just you know i'm still in touch with quite a few of them and loved working with them because people can change you know kind of people can give back and people can move on like the name of your podcast the most important thing that you can give someone is purpose
1: yeah i'm increasingly learning that i love that seeing the person not the situation so you you headed off to university in liverpool yeah that was leaving home was it and was that hard sort of leaving the family home with your mum ill was that a difficult thing to do
0: no, no, I'm, I'm from Liverpool and intentionally stayed in Liverpool, despite my mum's uh, encouragement. Otherwise, I stayed in Liverpool because I wanted to not be far from my mum, but still, you know, still managed to have a, you know, kind of a, a fruitful university life, but I didn't want to go far.
1: Yeah. And in terms of what you studied there, clearly had a passion for or a, a love for communicating. So that was is what you focused on, but you did a Bachelor of Arts, is that right?
0: Yeah, I did. I think it was called communication studies at the time. I think it's kind of a, that was a combination of kind of media and kind of, you know, kind of different kind of communication techniques and English literature. Yeah.
1: And a sense building then that you wanted your career to be about purpose or actually just enjoying student life and it would take care of itself. Do you remember what your thoughts were at the time?
0: No, I mean, I, yeah, I was, I, was kind of, I think I was a combination of both. I'd like to think actually at university, I worked on the university newspaper, met some incredible and ridiculously talented people who've gone on to do wonderful things within kind of the media and in, in the UK. Then also actually kind of worked for a South African education charity at university as well. So we would put nights on at the university to raise money to bring students over to the UK to study and I guess kind of that, that's where kind of the beginning came from. I, you know, my, my desire about about going into journalism was about telling stories. And I think uh, possibly slightly naively about actually kind of wanting to tell the truth. And it's the thing that took me to journalism, but actually kind of it's probably also the thing that ended up making me want to leave journalism. I think I think it became slightly disillusioned with, with the industry. But it has a lot of strengths, but actually kind of in, in some ways, actually when I was in it, I felt that it, i wasn't necessarily telling the stories that i thought were important so i you know i went I, I left university was a cub reporter on the local newspapers where boy do you learn your trade and your accountability to your uh, to your readership boy and, and, and amazing amazing boss at the time that actually kind of, I I don't even, you know, one of those jobs when I clearly worked hard because my portfolio was just astounding. I mean, you know, I don't mean I'm a great journalist. I mean, just the volume of work I was doing, but actually I never remember it being hard work. And I think that's the, that's probably the sign of the quality of boss that I had there who employed a, a load of uh, kind of young cub journalists with malleable minds and, and knew how to, to manage us but actually kind of I had you know I had the choice of kind of I could see the trajectory of my career of of you know going to the regional newspapers then going to the you know maybe the nationals and I was just thinking you know you're doing the you're doing the rounds of you know crime uh, inquest coroner's courts can you can see the trajectory and kind of I was just thinking I just I can't I can't see me doing this forever. And at the time, there was something new, a new publication in the UK called The Big Issue. And it just struck me that actually, that was probably a combination of, i guess my my skills and kind of my desire for purpose. And I, I jumped ship and went to work as the news editor there and then gradually became editor. Interestingly, when I left, The weekly newspaper I was working on and people knew I was going to work for The Big Issue, one of my leaving presents was a cardboard box, which I decided that just confirmed the reason why I was leaving. Yeah. uh, and It was supposed to be a joke. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And not a very funny one. No. Thinking about your gender and being a woman in that trade at that time, was that tough as well? Like being a female journalist?
0: It was at the mainstream newspapers. Yeah, I ended up in a few sticky situations and probably kind of didn't have the most supportive bosses at the time, I don't think. I think it was, you know, unfortunately, some of it was actually kind of, you know, what you put up with to try and get the story, which, you know, kind of looking back now is fairly horrifying. And just some, you know, just some of the general kind of behaviors of, you know, fellow journalists, and photographers at the time kind of probably left a lot to be desired. But it's, you know, to a degree it builds your resilience. You know, would I like any incoming journalists to the career at the moment to go through that? Probably not. Well, definitely not, but you know, it happened. But actually big issue in the north, it was led by two women who were just utterly amazing to work for. And I think kind of real trailblazers in kind of what they were trying to do. You know, I think back to kind of the time we talked a lot about, you know, this is in the early 90s, you know, we talked a lot about kind of values and behaviors within the organization. And, you know, looking, looking back now, actually, kind of they were real pioneers in terms of actually how they were thinking about the organization, thinking about the values and behaviors of the organization they wanted to lead. And I'm, I'm very grateful kind of to what I learned from them for what they did.
1: Yeah. And it's worth giving some context to internationalists. So big issue, giant social enterprise, giving real dignity to people who are living on the street. Would be the way I'd characterize it. People became small business owners effectively, didn't they? They they sold these publications for money and for earnings, and often it was a real bridge to a bit life. Would that be a good way of of describing it?
0: I would say it's actually giving people purpose as well, N- not to kind of keep returning to the title of your podcast. Hey, love it, but I ah, uh, but it's it is. <laughs> It was about actually giving people a hand up, not a hand out, that giving them a level of dignity, much like, you know, I saw and felt like we were doing at Blue Sky, the recruitment agency for ex-offenders, that actually if you give people purpose, if you give them a, a means to look after themselves, to contribute to society, that actually that could be self-fulfilling and they can continue to to grow and, and move on with their lives and I think that was what the, that's what the big issue was actually kind of. It was, you know, it, it wasn't about giving people a magazine to sell so that they didn't commit crime, you know, because that would just, that's, that is the criticism that was sometimes aimed at us. That is absolutely not what it was because that also assumes that people who are homeless actually kind of are, are also kind of criminals. And that is absolutely not the case. But it was about giving people a routine, giving them money, giving them an alternative, but actually also giving them access to services. So the big issue in the North, we, had a range of services that actually if you were selling the magazine you could also access all these services and you know i was thinking in preparing for this conversation i was thinking about what felt so special at the time i mean the focus on the magazine was just off the scale i mean it's just everybody wanted to be on the cover of it it was just um, it was Yeah, it it was just (laughs) world exclusive left right and center it was just it was mad and actually the investigations that we did and actually the media coverage that the actual magazine got as well was incredible but at the time actually I remember an accusation that was thrown at us that we were we were like the McDonald's of the homeless industry and I read that as we were trying to do something different we were trying to bring a and I'm going to say these words very specifically, but actually kind of it's it's very a business-like approach to how you create social impact and how you change people's lives. I don't mean a commercial approach. I mean, a business-like approach of actually kind of we were trying to be as enterprising as possible, that we were trying to, you know, maximize the profile of the magazine, the campaigns that it ran to advocate on behalf of the lives of homeless people, whilst also giving them an income and actually helping them move on with their lives i think it was really profound really profound i am so humbled and grateful for the fact that i had an opportunity to play a small part in the history of the big issue because it taught me so much and i think it was just so radically different that of course we were going to face criticism but i know the impact that we had and i'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to work alongside some amazing people and also to see people change their lives yeah and also say be able to say to people we're the best one in the world. I never want to see you again. And they say back, you will never see me again.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And so you finished up with them after seven years. You were the boss and the editor, from what I could tell. Uh, Was that a difficult decision to leave?
0: I originally went uh, on a year's sabbatical, um, so I was kind of like, I don't really want to leave, but I do need a break because, you know, the magazine had, it was so high profile, you know, I think kind of some of us were risk of, of burnout. You know, we, when you do this type of work, there's need everywhere, isn't there? And I think there are particular areas like homelessness, like criminal justice, as I, where I was working with with Blue Sky, is that actually? You know, there's always there's always more to do. There's always somebody coming through the door. There's always someone else whose life you can touch, and you have to. You know, the, the more the more the more senior role you have, the the importance is. For you, to, for you to recognize that your influence happens in different ways. And I think kind of I'd, I'd come to kind of really recognize that. So, listen, I was going for a, a sabbatical. My family lived in Venezuela. I ended up staying longer than uh, I expected. And when I came back, rather than going back into journalism, I went into social enterprise.
1: <laughs> yeah. And just exploring Venezuela for a bit. So, you're in Caracas. I'm I'm just thinking the politics of the time. So, Hugo, <laughs> Hugo Chavez was uh, the president. That was, you know, like a fin incredible country for lots of bad reasons incredibly rich resources the country has yeah but what was that like like end up in because it actually wasn't hasn't been a particularly safe place for foreigners to go to is it
0: no and listen i probably wouldn't have gone had did i not have family there i mean it is an experience having tanks on the end of, on the end of your roads when you're walking around you know sadly yes it is a dangerous country it is also actually kind of a beautiful beautiful country with so much natural resource so much to offer but actually you know kind of and you know diverse and wonderful i met some wonderful friends there but it has a history of a lot of violence a lot of corruption but there is an also also a lot of beauty and love there And now, actually, kind of, gosh, I can't imagine kind of how challenging it is there at the moment. But, you know, I had an amazing time there. Actually, kind of, what I always try to kind of be there is not kind of cocooned in kind of the, uh, I guess, kind of the international community there or she always wanted to be kind of outside of that I think kind of when you go into those environments you know actually kind of it is very easy to be subsumed into into that kind of international kind of expat lifestyle and it's not something I particularly kind of wanted to be put yes I knew it and I was I had one foot in and one foot out I guess interestingly when I was there actually kind of we I ended up having some conversations with the British Embassy about setting up the big issue there and had the most surreal experience of going to do a presentation to part of Chavez's government, uh, so part of the, I guess, what would be the equivalent of their communities department presenting on the, the big issue in spanish which was quite challenging yeah. and being picked up by a kind of heavily i don't know why then it felt they needed to do this but a heavily armored motorcade to be taken to the government offices to do the presentation which went very well until actually at the end of it they asked me did i want to sign up to the revolution at which point i declined and said uh, you know i thought i was <laughs> i thought i was here to talk about the big issue so it didn't go as, as planned yeah. but um but a a very surreal, amazing experience nonetheless.
1: Yeah, because your family, so what was, were they believers in the regime? Were they, what was the...
0: No, no, my, uh, like like uh, me, but uh, through a different route, my brother is also a journalist. So he uh, was working for Reuters uh, news agency there. And so was there, was posted out there as, as the bureau chief.
1: Wow. What an experience. Incredible. <laughs> but so time to return to, to the UK. And, um, and you had a sense that, um, you wanted to get back to making a difference.
0: When I came back, I I joined an organisation called CAN or Community Action Network, as it was called at the time. And this was in the days when governments saw the value of investing in infrastructure organisations to support the charity sector. Sadly, those you know, kind of those days have somewhat kind of passed. You know, I've, I've always been a believer that actually kind of, you know, we don't expect business sector to operate effectively without having infrastructure organisations that represent them. So why would we expect the kind of charity sector to do any differently? And CAN was a, you know, kind of an infrastructure organisation. It was a social enterprise support organisation and yeah I had a great time actually kind of really it was a, a that time when uh, the belief in in social enterprise and its you know kind of the matching kind of social purpose with you know kind of enterprise and uh, on entrepreneurialism was was really at its height and met some amazing people some great social entrepreneurs you had the kind of real privilege to kind of support and yeah had a great time it was a, a great organisation and a great time in london for social enterprise i think
1: And so joined us in the comms role and then worked your way up to MD.
0: Yes, was deputy CEO. And then also kind of we began some social investment funds. So kind of also ran some of the social investment funds and the philanthropy funds that the organization was lucky enough to raise, investing in startup social enterprises, uh, doing impact consulting. And, you know, I guess, you know, reflecting on it, thinking back about actually also convening corporations who were interested in social enterprise to put social enterprises in their supply chains to think about their own impact reporting and actually kind of their footprint on society at a time when that was really kind of, you know, I guess that, that was the super early times of, of kind of thinking about ESG and 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 had the pleasure of working with some really amazing individuals within companies as well who were, you know, really thinking about, you know, kind of the roundedness of 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 leadership and how companies Can and are and should be uh, forces for good in in the local communities.
1: Yeah. So, a thread through your career, you know, like journalism, communication, storytelling, but actually investment and the power of money. What's your own like journey been on in terms of money and the power of it? And is that, has money always made sense to you personally?
0: Um, Listen, you know, kind of, I, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate to have the salary that I do, Um, kind of, you know, I I don't take that for granted at all. I think, you know, money on its own is not good. I think, listen, I work in philanthropy, actually, kind of, you know, money has the opportunity to do incredible good, but it can also kind of come... With loaded power structures, inequalities, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What I love about London Community Foundation is that within the funds that we manage, you will hear and see the team talking to donors about who makes decisions about where the money goes, actually, how do you make real long term social impact by thinking about the communities that benefit from the money that is on offer that actually kind of how do we who makes decisions actually going to where does lived experience sit within those decisions you know the team are incredibly thoughtful about how they talk to donors about where their money could go and that's always a journey isn't it you know actually kind of it's When people kind of start their philanthropic journey, they're coming to third party agencies like LCF because they don't know how to do it and we're very cognizant of that and we're very respectful. But we will also push the agenda in terms of equity and power and thinking about how we really help build a diverse and sustainable and resilient charitable sector that is representative of everybody.
1: And you you know, seem so well placed to take on the role of of CEO of London Community Foundation, but thank you. <laughs> is it a, is it a job that you covered? Did it? it? Did people walk towards you? Like, how did the opportunity arrive?
0: Headhunted. I think I know that. What really excites me about LCF is the convening role, and also the fact that we're not like a traditional foundation. By that, I mean we don't have a an endowment of our own that isn't restricted money for of that we have we hold for donors. That is throwing off income that covers our operating costs. We have to prove our worth by raising all our own operating costs and the money that we give away. So it requires a level of entrepreneurialism and fleet of foot and salesman, salesperson and telling stories, which appealed to me. Um, We have such a privileged role in London of where we sit and the access that we have, whether that's, you know, kind of going into a community centre in a neighbourhood and spending time with some utterly amazing community leaders to working with the mayor's office, to working with the Evening Standard newspaper, to working with FTSE, you know, kind of 100 companies, I think... London is a beast of an operation I think kind of sometimes our work reflects that but it's a very privileged role but I think the what the board were looking for at the time was someone who knows how to tell a story and can bring complex issues to life
1: yeah the complexity and community foundations and especially on the scale that you're talking like you're just you're sort of mind and complexity every day aren't you so you're doing yeah. you know Plate really spending, complex like deals it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do to sort of unwind from that like what get away from the complexity and just simplify things what's your
0: i exercise a lot i think increasingly i've realized that me having headspace is the most important thing i can give the team sometimes i have to make the decisions sometimes they're the wrong decisions but i have to make the decisions and clarity of thought and purpose and view is what i owe the team so actually giving myself not getting too entangled in the in the details sometimes uh, the team might think otherwise actually sometimes (laughs) yeah i i try to give myself an awful lot of um, headspace to do a lot of mountain walking my partner and i very lucky to be able to rent a cottage in wales and we spend as much time there as we can in the mountains because you you know being in the mountains puts things into perspective just actually kind of how small you are
1: yeah and you talked about showing vulnerability as a leader during covid What well, it's you know i know myself it's uh mm-hmm. lonely being ceo because um you <laughs> know you don't often have someone to talk to and, and actually you know the the border you can be massively supportive but they're also your boss yeah where do you draw your inspiration from where do you get your advice from
0: oh, great question Uh, Well, there are 40, how many did I say? 48 other community foundation chief execs who, um, you know, we may be different models in how we drive local philanthropy, but often kind of the challenges of a CEO and board engagement are common, you know, regardless of regardless of shape or size. I'm very fortunate. My partner is an ex-CEO of a big social enterprise in, in the UK. And he probably wouldn't like me saying it, but actually kind of, you know, he does, I find him coaching me, but actually whether or not he would agree that he coaches me is, is another matter. But, um, uh, and I'm, I'm just very fortunate to have, you know, kind of good, good friends around me who uh, kind of, you know, I, I try not to bring my work too much into it, but I also kind of take inspiration from them. And it's also about just never being, you know, I am I am wholeheartedly my biggest critic and, you know, kind of probably kind of too much sometimes, but actually I would never want it to not be that I, I wasn't critical of myself. And I, I know I'd like to think that the team... Particularly, kind of the, the senior managers actually kind of feel because I, that they do do it, film, you know, kind of pull me up sometimes or kind of feel confident and that we have such a trusting relationship that they can challenge me and they do and I welcome it.
1: What's your blind spot? What's a bad day for you in terms of leadership?
0: <sighs> um, I mean, as I said before actually, kind of, it's, you know, kind of, it's always people and money. It's always, always people and money. I think kind of the board at LCF, I think kind of we've done an awful lot of work on kind of growing the board. And, you know, I'm, I've always, always throughout my career been a great believer in kind of great impact and great organizations start and end with good governance, go, good or conversely bad governance. I think kind of the LCF board is great. And you know, it's I, I am. I've always been a believer. You get the board that you deserve, as well. That actually kind of you know is always a frisson of nervousness before a board meeting, and and kind of a bit of kind of exhaustion afterwards. Yeah, mm. but actually that's okay because actually kind of that's that's kind of what they're there for. I don't mean kind of you know terrifying you. I don't mean like that at all. Uh, what I mean is actually kind of uh, you know having ha- being complacent going into a board meeting is not that's not good governance <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah and
0: actually you want people with different perspectives to really get you out of your comfort zone you know to work alongside you but you've put them on the board not you have not i have but they have been put on the board because precisely because of the diversity of, of viewpoint that they've got and they and they're not articulating it and not challenging you what they're there for you know
1: yeah and do you think mindset's important with boards so having a positive mindset and um like you you sound like you do and you know I think you're right. Like, if you're complacent, then maybe not doing enough. Maybe not you're you're not on your game. In terms of your like younger self, what advice would you give to a younger Kate Markey? Like, clearly, purpose has been a big focus for you, and that's been a real realization. But what would be your advice to a younger you?
0: Gosh, I was a bundle of nerves when I was younger. I was frightened of life. Uh, you know, that guess partly, you know. Maybe my mum's illness partly had something to do with that. And so kind of, you know, I I'd never, ever really had any, I worked hard. I was super diligent because I was terrified of being anything otherwise. But I didn't ever have this big driving ambition to be something. I think actually what I wanted to be was, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Actually, Often kind of when people are nervous or lacking confidence, actually kind of what they, you often see people wanting to make the least footprint on society as possible and that's sometimes kind of driven by people's own nervousness and vulnerability and I think you know you see you see that a lot in people and actually I think kind of I think I was a little bit like that and I think I warm to people who are like that because kind of I recognize it in myself sometimes but I think it would be you know actually kind of you may be a, a bit of a nervous wreck but actually you you also have a lot of to give and that's okay.
1: What was he? Yeah, because I, like you, suffered nerves, and and like I wanted to do student radio, but like you know, I got as close to the you know the front door as well as because, and I I remember phoning in a few times, like, like a long time long time listener first time caller. But what was the internal dialogue? Do you remember that message you were saying to yourself that potentially created the nerves? Or
0: I think it's you know, th- th- gosh, this is getting a bit deep, but I, I kind of think it's you know when you I, because I think my mum's illness was so dramatic that actually kind of I probably lived with a fear that she was going to die at any moment and you know you look back and you think god actually kind of for kids these days you would like to think there are those support structures around if it happened again actually kind of you know if it ha- sorry if it happened now I might be you know kind of a assigned to kind of the you know the I don't know a dialysis support charity that actually kind of might give me an outlet to talk about my anxiety of, you know, what was going to happen with my mum. Actually what ended up happening is she died quite dramatically when I was 24 at a New Year's Eve party at her best friend's house. And it was terribly traumatic and we're trying to she was having a she had a massive heart attack and they were trying to keep her alive for a very long time. And you know the reason why I mentioned that is the thing that I probably feared happened yeah and i think the message was feel the fear and do it anyway because mm. what's the worst that's going to happen
1: <laughs> yeah i think there's lots of examples where people who have gone on to do amazing things and you know run organizations found companies run multiple mouths, marath- whatever like there's some diverse there's some sort of adversity in their correct backgrounds like almost do you think you almost have to have adversity to achieve or I guess it's all uh, relative
0: I mean you know yeah you look at kind of some of the you know kind of the classic kind of entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs And I'm kind of including my partner in this actually kind of where you've where there has been a level of kind of uh, anxiety or hardship to overcome and that becomes the driver because you never want to go backwards and I think there is always a hunger there is always a hunger to drive to move forward it's not about scale it's not about money it's not about prestige it's not about position but it's I guess kind of a memory of maybe you know for I'm not talking about myself here but a memory of actually kind of how things might have been or were or a memory of kind of people who've touched your lives who've been in vulnerable situations that actually kind of view there's always more to do there's always always more to do I think you know my work ethic comes from both my parents I think and I'm a great believer if you want something done ask a busy person you know <laughs>
1: yeah and one thing I one thing I noticed about you just in preparing for this interview is you like to be prepared don't you like you like to know what situation you're walking into
0: uh, yes, you might have. Yes, you have. You have found me out, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that that comes from that's that comes from you know nerves of just kind of. I think I, you know, when you do those kind of personality management kind of test things. I think I'm an extroverted and an introverted extrovert, or the other way around. I can't remember which one it is. I like to be able to. You know, sometimes I struggle to kind of have the answer there and then or have an opinion there or then. And I like to be able to ruminate and to come back, you know, which is, I guess, sometimes challenging for it to be in a position of CEO where people are expecting you to kind of make decisions on stuff. And actually, kind of, I think it's okay to say sometimes, I can't make a decision about that at the moment. I will come back to you. Obviously, you need to come back quickly. But actually, kind of, I think it's okay to articulate that you are the type of person that also kind of needs to take a bit of time and to think about things.
1: Yeah. And as we move towards wrapping up, optimistic about the future? You know, it's a tough winter ahead. We're talking at the beginning of probably one of the toughest winters experienced in Europe. But yeah, optimistic about the longer term future?
0: I'm optimistic about the power of people to support each other. I am worried about the resilience of people to be able to keep communities together. But You know, I think we saw during COVID just the most incredible acts of human kindness. And I think that regardless of what a polarised, politicised society we're living in, actually kind of, I think that is still there. I have belief in that. That's what's driven me. I would like, I'm optimistic that people want to give and people want to help. I think there's opportunity for that's happened a lot more in London in terms of private banks and advisors and really kind of supporting their clients to kind of give more in London and, and give to London. Um, you know, at the moment, actually, kind of I'm thinking about, you know, how much philanthropy is generated in London and how much of it stays in London. And that's, that's something that's occupying, kind of my mind at the moment and, and strategically for, for LCF I have absolute belief in the team and uh, LCF and what we can deliver together you know it's always one of those things isn't it that actually kind of you know the classic thing of actually putting yourselves out of business well you know kind of wh- wherever there is disparity wherever there is wealth there is a propensity to give it's our role to unlock that and get it to the people who need it the most
1: okay Marky, massive thank you for joining me on purposely
0: thank you Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.